0: The tea is dripping and the fence is fallen down. It's the end of May at the University of Missouri. Finals and graduation are just a breath away, and the nights are getting warmer. Richard Jackson is getting dressed for a party. He probably shouldn't go out on a Sunday, but hey, it's senior year, and it's such a nice night. It's 1948, and the administration holds students to a strict moral standard. But after all, boys will be boys so they typically turn a blind eye to off-campus parties. But this party doesn't get the luxury of flying under the radar. No, this party will shape the next 20 years at the University of Missouri, because this party is hosted by Professor E.K. Johnston, a beloved fixture of the journalism school for the last 25 years. He's now serving as the interim dean, and according to the newspapers, before the week is up, He's also the leader of Columbia's so-called Homosexual Ring. This wasn't the first party Johnston hosted, but it was the one that made the difference. He hosted them every once in a while at his apartment in town, or his cabin out in Salem. Remember, this was the 40s, so you couldn't be openly gay without risking everything. Your career, your reputation, your freedom. LGBT folks need a safe haven, a place where they don't have to pretend. A place to just be. Johnston's parties are that place.
1: My brother took a suitcase and he went away to school. My father said he only to be a silly fool My
0: until school administration catches wind of what's happening. and then state legislators find out. and then it gets bad. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened, why did it happen, and how has that shaped the state today. I'm Christopher Husted. You're listening to Show Me the State on KBIA 91.3 FM check out our other podcasts the obvious question and the true false podcast on kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts now back to show me the state before we get to how the university of missouri treated gay students and faculty we need to talk about the culture of the time there's a lot we don't know about the history of lgbt students in higher education that's because for decades homosexuality was addressed as a disciplinary issue And these types of files remain confidential. But there are some high-profile cases that can give us an idea. Like when Harvard set up a secret court in the 1920s to investigate students accused of homosexuality. The students were expelled. One of them ended up taking his own life.
1: Well, in the 1940s, like today, uh, there were a mix of feelings towards gays and lesbians. Um, some of it was outrage, as you said, and some of it wasn't.
0: Margaret Nash is an education historian at the University of California, Riverside, and has studied how LGBT students and staff have been treated in higher education throughout history. She joins us from the studios of KUCR. She says in the 1940s, America's school of thought about gay people was at a crossroads. In
1: 1948, that was kind of a pivotal year because the Kinsey Report came out. We call it that now, the Kinsey Report, but that's shorthand for the title was Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And when this was published, it um, really made a splash, and lots of people read it.
0: The first Kinsey Report found that 37% of men had at least one homosexual experience.
1: This just shocked people, as Kinsey was um, famous for having said, When you're walking down the street, more than one in three men you pass on the street has had some kind of a homosexual experience.
0: Many people reacted to the Kinsey report one of two ways. Some accepted being gay as normal and thought laws shouldn't punish common consensual acts. But others were shocked by its findings and thought our laws weren't punitive enough.
1: And especially by the late 1940s when the U.S. has entered into the Cold War and... The Cold War is not just democracy versus communism, it's also a Christian nation versus a godless nation. And so that kind of reinvigorated um, conservative biblical beliefs too regarding homosexuality and other things.
0: The Kinsey reports are considered to be among the most successful and influential scientific books of the 20th century. Kinsey's findings were controversial to the public because they dealt so candidly with human sexuality, a taboo topic for polite society in the 1940s. The first Kinsey report was published in 1948, and people all over the country couldn't stop talking about it. So by the time word got out about Professor Johnston's parties that May, Kinsey's findings were at the forefront of the public's mind, and many of these people thought it was time to take action.
1: One of the results of all of this is that um, some people pushed very hard for far more punitive laws against homosexuality up until the 1940s, where there were um, anti-gay laws, they were just misdemeanors, and they were for things like disorderly conduct. But by the late 1940s, um, several states had passed what were called sexual psychopath laws. And that meant that by definition, if you were homosexual, you were a sexual psychopath. And that even if there was no evidence of any actual homosexual behavior, you could be institutionalized if people had reason to believe that you were or might be homosexual. Some places had mandatory psychiatric treatment. It's important to remember that the American Psychological Association didn't take homosexuality off the list of mental illnesses until 1973.
0: By 1948, the rumors of an underground gay community at the University of Missouri began to circulate, and the administration and state legislature are paying attention. Enter Thomas Brady. He began teaching at the university in the 1920s, but by this time, in the late 40s, he was the dean of extra-divisional administration. He was a highly respected educator and an advocate for student veterans and he was also in charge of the Committee on Discipline, leading the crusade against gay people on campus. In 1949, Brady visited the University of Wisconsin-Madison to get some inspiration for how to handle what he called homosexual cases. When he returned, he wrote up a set of best practices. Brady set up a swift and effective machine that would keep gay students away from the University of Missouri for years to come. All university officials were expected to report any information about improper conduct of students and employees related to, quote, immoral acts or dangerous proclivities, or risk facing the grave consequences of keeping it hush-hush. Basically, if you work at the University of Missouri and someone tells you something in confidence that leads you to believe they might possibly be gay, you are required to report it. Then the university went further, from reactive to proactive. Because according to his memos we found at the university archives, Brady's goal wasn't just to remove all known gay people from campus, but, as he wrote in a November 1949 memo to the university president, to, quote, establish machinery for identification and apprehension of such persons. The Committee on Discipline started focusing its efforts on investigating students they thought might be gay. The search to root out gay students was aggressive and all-consuming. The committee had a singular vision, catching these students and getting them off campus. In September 1949, a law professor resigned from his post on the committee because investigations were taking up all of his time, days, nights, weekends, and holidays.
2: The University of Missouri was considered kind of a safe spot.
0: Wayne Anderson was a campus psychologist at the university starting in the mid-1960s. But when he started his post, he got to see all the files from the 40s and 50s.
2: The word according to the the records I was exposed to is that the gay people reported that this was kind of a stopover place for people who were gay on their way from one coast to another because it was a safe place because there were other homosexuals they could make contact with and there was a community here. And so that was part of the problem.
0: The Student Health Service, now the Student Health Center, was officially established in September of 1949. Today it's the Center for Student Resources for everything from depression to conjunctivitis. Just like on most campuses around the country, if you need your yearly flu shot or a prescription for the pill, the doctors here are your first line of defense. But back when it first opened, the directors all signed a letter to Brady agreeing to covertly help identify gay students and agreeing to help get rid of them. The letter included the following.
1: A. There will often be times when the physician can persuade the individual involved that it is better for his own welfare to leave the university. B. There will be other occasions when the therapist and the student health service can state to the individual involved that it will be necessary for him to leave and the basis for leaving the university will be entered on the record as a medical reason.
0: A decade before Wayne Anderson came back to campus to teach psychology and work at the counseling center, he was a doctoral candidate here in the 50s. And he says he saw something troubling in the Ellis Library men's bathroom.
2: What had happened, there was two rooms. There's the John, he had a door, you go through. Then there was an entry room. And I came in one day and they had built a wall making the entry room half as big as it was with a door. And I thought, how strange. I must be using it for storage. And I walk into the men's john, and there are two mirrors. You've got a mirror this side, a mirror on this side. The one on this side is a one-way screen. And I'm very familiar with one-way screens because we use them in psychological training all the time. Mm -hmm. So you can watch client and and therapist work together and observe. And so a reporter from the paper, I understand, went over with a brick in his briefcase and smashed the window, looked in, and there was a hole in the wall and there was the chair on the other side of the screen. Nobody was sitting there at the time. And so that's how we found it was an observation room.
0: Wayne isn't the only one who tells the story. In parts of the university's LGBT population, versions of this legend are commonplace. So we asked university officials if this story was true. They said after extensive research, they found zero evidence of the room, though University Director of Libraries Anne Campion Riley did say she found where, quote, gay activity was mentioned in meetings, with specific mentions of the upper level restrooms at Ellis Library. We did our own research as well. We went through newspapers and records from the 1950s and 1960s, looking for any evidence that might support this story. So far, we've come up empty handed we haven't found any references to a secret bathroom observation room or an intrepid journalist uncovering it. Whether myth or reality in Colombia, stories like this are a major part of LGBT history in this country. In 1962, Ohio police used hidden cameras and one-way glass to catch 38 men who used public restrooms to meet up. They were all imprisoned for sodomy. Many were subjected to electroshock therapy and other so-called conversion techniques while in jail. In Georgia, Florida, California, and more, similar cases have been well documented. It's possible stories about the University of Missouri emerged from a collective fear that this could happen to any LGBT person at any moment. But before all this, the psychologists in the mirrors, before the memos and machinations, there was a party off campus and outside of town where gay men could just be themselves.
3: Love somebody. Yes, I do. I love somebody
0: where they could dance to the latest Doris Day or Nat King Cole hit under soft lights, surrounded by people just like them, where they could flirt and feel alive without the constant threat of prying eyes, where even just for a couple of hours, they got to feel the relief of belonging. They got to feel safe until they were found out. And then, there is outrage and scare tactics and pulling students in for interrogations until they give up names. What did you see? Who else was there? Until 18-year-olds sell out their friends. And that's where we find Richard Jackson, then a senior at the University of Missouri, because Jackson was at this party. Well, at the very least, someone said he was, and that was enough for the administration to send him packing.
1: He writes letters and writes petitions, and he gets a meeting with the Committee on Discipline. But they say, no, 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 we don't believe you. We think you're lying. You are you went to those parties. You're one of them. He insists on a meeting with the board of trustees. And they, of course, go along with the Committee on Discipline, too, and he's expelled. And this is all even though there was no evidence that he was gay or that he had ever engaged in any homosexual acts, either on campus or off campus. The only actual wrongdoing, in quotes, that the committee charged him with was that he had associated with people like that professor. People who were either presumed to be gay or were known to be gay. That was his his big crime. So he was expelled.
0: We'll be right back. You are listening to KBIA 91.3 FM and the Show Me the State program. Making this podcast and untangling complicated folklore takes time and money. So if you value this kind of journalism and storytelling, consider going to KBIA.org and click the donate button. You're listening to KBIA 91.3 FM. Now, back to Show Me the State. Richard Jackson was expelled without any due process. In his final plea to the university, he wrote,
1: I was dismissed in my senior year for a reason I do not know, by a committee that I did not know, and by a committee that did not know me. You have taken three years out of my life and cast it away for no reason. I can say that um, this particular student, Richard Jackson, um, fought against this lack of due process and challenged the, the university for um, engaging in what he called Gestapo-like tactics. And remember, this is just a couple of years after the end of World War II. So Nazi ideas are still front and center in people's minds. And we had fought against undemocratic principles in Europe and so Richard Jackson says, and, and how are you different? You didn't give me due process. I didn't get a trial. I, there is no real evidence against me. And how is this different from Gestapo tactics?
0: According to Wayne Anderson, this era of intense scrutiny lasted about a decade. We'll never know how many gay students were expelled under Brady's direction, because those records are all confidential. And even if we were able to see them, they probably wouldn't be of much use. So many students were pushed out of the university while the people in charge intentionally mislabeled their files to cover it up. So we'll never know how many people were affected by these policies, and we'll never know what happened to them. We don't even know what happened to Richard Jackson. In fact, we don't even know his real name. We weren't supposed to know about him at all. But a mix-up with the university brought his story to light on the condition that he's referred to with a pseudonym. By the time Wayne Anderson came back to work at the university in the 1960s, he says the attitude of many administrators and police had begun to de-escalate. Most people weren't interested in witch hunts and creative spying tactics anymore. It's at this point that Wayne started holding group therapy sessions off campus to help gay students cope with the daily dilemmas they faced in a world that did not accept them.
2: One of the biggest, of course, is just dealing with parents. One of the others uh, had to do with vocation. It's like it's, how do you keep undercover at the same time that you're open enough that you can communicate with other gays and set up relationships without that giving you away in some way that you're going to lose a job or lose prestige?
0: Larry Eggleston was one of the students Wayne worked with. If his name rings a bell, that's because he went on to make history. In the early 70s, a group of students started a gay liberation organization on campus, but the university refused to give the group formal recognition.
2: Well, Larry did not stand still with that.
0: Larry sued the university, and three years later, a U.S. district court sided with gay lib.
2: They didn't say homosexuality was legal on the campus. What they said is you must recognize the organization. as a legitimate organization by legitimate students. Well, when that happened in 78, suddenly there were some parades went on around campus with the with the gays coming out. My God! It was, I, I, and a low estimate would be 4% of the population, but that's hundreds of people. He had a lot of guts. I mean, if you're gonna take on a university and take it to the Supreme Court, you ain't no baby.
0: Finally, in 1978, Gay Liberation met on campus for the first time as an officially recognized student organization, all thanks to Larry. The University of Missouri's LGBT community today would be unrecognizable to Richard Jackson. The university's non-discrimination policy now includes protection for students and faculty on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Beyond that, there are resources on campus dedicated to supporting LGBT students, faculty, and staff, like a scholarship for deserving students, a library in the LGBT Center, tip sheets for dealing with an unsupportive family during school breaks, and designated people to talk to when the odds are stacked against you. Seven decades ago, Richard Jackson was expelled from the University of Missouri in the spring of his senior year because of rumors about his sexuality. If he were a senior this year, he could spend the month of April participating in College Pride Month, attending or performing in a student-run drag show in Memorial Union.
2: Where are all the gaming at? Make some noise, game yeah. OK, Queen, calm down.
0: Furiously taking notes at a keynote speech about the intersections of disability, gender, and sexuality, or sharing his own story on the big stage at a show sponsored by the theater department. On any average day, he could spend his afternoons in the LGBT Center in the basement of the University Student Center. That's what it's called now. Up until it was rebuilt and reopened starting in 2009, it was called Brady Commons, after the man who made it his mission to remove LGBT students from campus. After a student-run campaign in the middle of Missouri, Brady's name was forever erased from the space. But even in 2019, it's not all drag shows and empowerment. There are at least eight colleges in Missouri with a Title IX exemption. This means that even though they receive federal funding, they're allowed to discriminate against people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender expression. There are certainly LGBT staff and students at these schools. The difference is they can't come out. And even though there are some protections at the University of Missouri, that doesn't mean there aren't challenges. We see that students still are experiencing um, unsupportive families and parents and friends. That's Sean Olmsted, the former coordinator of the university's LGBT Resource Center. He organized these pride events on campus each April, but he was also responsible for supporting LGBT students and faculty all year long. And although the university has become more accepting and supporting of the LGBT community, Sean says there are still a
3: lot of obstacles, often starting at home. When we see that happen, we do know that we tend to see um, a correlation of students not being successful on campus, um, which makes sense if your family cuts you off financially. How are you gonna be successful as a student if you're having to think more about your finances and um, how you're gonna pay your bills and how you're gonna go to school?
0: The University of Missouri has come a long way since the gay purge of the 40s and 50s. But when we were asking to interview MU LGBT faculty and staff members for this episode, we ran into some obstacles that tell us there are problems and fears lurking beneath the surface. One faculty member warned us that non-tenured LGBT professors may be wary of speaking publicly about their experiences on campus. A trans staff member agreed to come on the show, then ended up changing his mind due to safety concerns. He agreed to let us share a statement from him anonymously. It reads, After some thought over the weekend, I apologize, but I just don't feel comfortable doing the interview. It is a dangerous time in our world in regard to the LGBTQ community, and it has caused me to pull back on public speaking or interviews because I fear someone out there might respond in a way that is not safe. I hope you understand. We spoke with many lgbt students and one student did want to share his story
3: well i don't like talk
0: about it a lot alex carranza is a Columbia native and a 2019 university of missouri graduate during his four years alex worked with multiple student organizations to make campus a more welcoming place for other lgbt students and people of color he found his place here with diversity peer educators helping students and faculty confront and overcome their biases but there's some stuff from the last four years that he doesn't like to talk about. And unfortunately,
3: this kind of stuff is more common than we like to think. I was at um, downtown, obviously at a bar, and I was like just dancing with this guy. And this dude came up and he was like, are you gonna kiss me too? And then he just like hit me. And like, oh God, it was like really hard. I remember I called my mom. Like I immediately left. And I was also just kind of like disappointed because none of my friends said or did anything. And I was like, at that moment, I kind of felt like, are they really like supporting me if they didn't even do anything? I literally, I I never like called my mom in like a moment of like distress or anything. And like, this was the first time it happened. She like picked me up. Oh God, I'm gonna gonna cry, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) But like she like picked me up and I literally, I didn't tell her what happened because I know she would she would have stormed in there and did, did something. And she would, cause she wanted to, she would have like wanted to protect me. This was actually the first time I ever talked to my mom about being gay, like after I came out to her. After I came out did and talked to her about it, we just kind of like, oh yeah, Alex is gay. And then we kind of just kept moving cause it was like kind of awkward. And this was like, I didn't want the first moment to like where we actually talked about it to be a moment where I was literally hurt.
0: E.K. Johnston, the journalism professor who threw that notable party, died in Kansas City in 1990. We don't know what happened to him after he was fired from the university. We don't know if he went on to find success, if he fell in love, if he died happy he did what he could, or bitter at how the world treated him. We don't know where Richard Jackson ended up either, But we know what's next for Alex Carranza. He's headed to New York City for a public policy fellowship. He's seen society's blind spots, and he's ready to help make change. In Missouri, conversion therapy is still legal. LGBT people aren't protected by the state anti-discrimination laws. In October, the U.S. Supreme Court will decide if Title VII, the current federal sex-based discrimination protections, also extend to LGBT identities. But until then, they can be discriminated against in housing and employment in most of the state with no legal recourse. And for someone like Richard Jackson, today could feel like progress. But even where there are some codified protections, like in Columbia and at the University of Missouri, the culture hasn't caught up yet. Today, you can't legally be fired or expelled for your sexuality in Columbia, but you might not be safe in the bar with your friends or on the walk home simply because of the way you are.
2: There was a boy A very strange, enchanted boy They say he wandered very far, very far
1: Over land and sea
0: Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Madison Conti produced this episode. Janet Saidi helped edit it. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Fumuliner. Our theme music and original scoring was created by Columbia band Loose Loose. The songs you heard in this episode include Mañana is Soon Enough For Me by Peggy Lee, Love Somebody by Doris Day and Buddy Clark, and this song, Nature Boy by Nat King Cole. All top singles in 1948. Special thanks to our editorial advisor, Nathan Lawrence, and also to Craig Horn for being our voice actor. Thanks also to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy.
1: You never learn is just lie. and be loved. Hmm.